Hello, everybody, and welcome to Get Lit Minute, your weekly podcast for all things poetic, poetry, and poets. My name is Samuel Curtis, and I'm the head of productions for Get Lit Words Ignite. Get Lit is a nonprofit organization that uses poetry and spoken word to increase literacy and empower young people. Get lit, get literacy, get literate. In this podcast, we focus on the lives, history, and the works of classic poets and modern day contemporary poets. This is our first episode recorded during the coronavirus era of 2020, and right now I'm recording this episode from my little bungalow here in Venice Beach, California. We send all our thoughts to those who are suffering from the pandemic, and if you are a young person, a teacher, a parent, or just someone who is looking for educational resources during these times, please visit us at getlit.org and know that we are here to help. This podcast will continue to be your one-stop shop for poetry, history, and the power of the spoken word. Today, we are going to feature the Pulitzer Prize award-winning poet, novelist, and short story writer, Sylvia Plath. Sylvia Plath was born in 1932 in Boston. Plath was the daughter of a German immigrant college professor, Otto Plath, and one of his students, Aurelia Schober. The poet's early years were spent near the seashore, but her life changed abruptly when her father died in 1940. Some of her most vivid poems, including the well-known poem entitled Daddy, concerned her troubled relationship with her authoritarian father and her feelings of betrayal when he died. Financial circumstances forced the Plath family to move to Wellesley, Massachusetts, where Aurelia Plath taught advanced secretarial studies at Boston University. Sylvia Plath was a gifted student who had won numerous awards and had published stories and poetry in National Magazine while still in her teens. She attended Smith College on scholarship and continued to excel, winning a Mademoiselle Fiction Contest one year and garnering a prestigious guest editorship of the magazine the following summer. As a very young poet, Plath experimented with a villanelle and other forms. You may ask, what is a villanelle? It's a short poem of fixed form, written in tercets, usually five in number, followed by a final quatrain, all being based on two rhymes. Well, then you may ask, what is a tercet and a quatrain? A tercet is a three-line verse or a group or unit of three lines. These three lines are often rhymed together, or they rhyme with another triplet. It has a flow of words such as rolling waves. And a quatrain is a verse with four lines, or even a full poem containing four lines. Often one line consists of alternating rhyme, existing in a variety of forms. We can trace back quatrains and poetic traditions of various ancient civilizations, such as China, ancient Rome, and ancient Greece, and they continue to appear in the 21st century. So back to Sylvia as a young person. She had been stimulated by such writers as D.H. Lawrence, James Joyce, Fyodor Dostoevsky, Virginia Woolf, Henry James, Theodore Rothke, Emily Dickinson, and later by Robert Lowell and Anne Sexton. She has been linked with Lowell and Sexton as a member of the so-called confessional school of poetry. Ted Hughes, who had a controversial history as Sylvia's husband, noted that Sylvia shared with these other poets a similar geographical homeland, as well as the central experience of a shattering of the self, and the labor of fitting it together again or finding a new one. It was during her undergraduate years that Plath began to suffer the symptoms of severe depression that would ultimately lead to her death. In one of her journal entries dated June 20th, 1958, she wrote, It is as if my life were magically run by two electric currents, joyous positive and despairing negative. Whichever is running at the moment dominates my life, floods it. 
This is an eloquent description of what some would diagnose as potentially bipolar disorder or manic depression, a mental health condition for which no genuinely effective medications were available during Plath's lifetime. In August of 1953, at the age of 20, Plath attempted suicide. She survived the attempt and was hospitalized, receiving treatment with electroshock therapy. Her experiences of breakdown and recovery were later turned into fiction for her only published novel, The Bell Jar. Having made a recovery, Plath returned to Smith for her degree. She earned a Fulbright grant to study at Cambridge University in England, and it was there that she met poet Ted Hughes. The two were married in 1956. Plath published two major works during her lifetime, The Bell Jar and a poetry volume titled The Colossus. Both received warm reviews. However, the end of her marriage in 1962 left Plath with two young children to care for, and after an intense burst of creativity that produced the poems in Ariel, she committed suicide. Ariel was originally published in 1965, two years after her death. So this leads me to a thought, the idea of the tortured artist. In a 2011 interview, the indie rocker Jeff Tweedy of Wilco fame called the concept of the tortured artist a damaging mythology, one that impeded his own battles with addiction, anxiety, and depression. And at GitLit, we see art as therapeutic, cathartic, having the ability to heal oneself from past traumas, as opposed to just keeping your struggles within. Now, without a doubt, many of the world's most recognized pieces of artistic achievement have come out of great struggle and tremendous pain. But in my opinion, that is not the sole prerequisite to produce powerful work. Hardly known outside poetry circles during her lifetime, largely on the strength of Ariel, Plath became one of the best known female American poets of the 20th century. In Ariel, we see the personal testaments to the loneliness and insecurity that plagued her. Her semi-autobiographical novel, The Bell Jar, was a testing ground for her poems. It is, according to the critic Charles Newman, one of the few American novels to treat adolescence from a mature point of view. It chronicles a nervous breakdown and consequent professional therapy in non-clinical language. And finally, it gives us one of the few sympathetic portraits of what happens to one who has genuinely feminist aspirations in our society, of a girl who refuses to be an event in anyone's life. Plath would link the grand theme of womanhood with the destiny of modern civilization. Plath published the book in 1962 under a pseudonym Victoria Lucas, partly because she didn't consider it a serious work and partly because she thought too many people would be hurt by it. Sylvia Plath, she was considered a confessional poet. What does it mean to be a confessional poet? To speak the truth, to confess. And this whole idea of why did she use this pseudonym? Did she think that it was too confessional, too honest? This is something we deal a lot with in our poetry. How far are you willing to tell the truth? How specific are you willing to relate the circumstances? I think there's an importance of writing coming-of-age stories. There's an importance to sharing the experience one goes through their youth. Um, it's something that we all deal with, and I think our poets are in a unique position to really write incredible coming-of-age stories, be it a poem or a screenplay or a novel. It's such an important time 
in our lives, these formative years. And all I can say is coming of age stories are important. You know, it reminds me of these shows that we do called Blit Shows, where Get Lit brings poets to high schools for somewhat of an assembly. And what's so inspiring and really just incredible to witness is you see these young people in the audience at this assembly, seeing people like themselves, seeing their peers on the stage, sharing their truth, sharing their story. There's something about that that is really powerful. So... All I can say to you out there is tell your story, tell your truth. These coming of age stories really can impact other young people like you. I know when I was growing up, sometimes I didn't necessarily know which move to make and I would read stories. I would watch films about other people who had similar experiences to me, who walked a similar path that I had walked or were walking a path that I one day wanted to walk. So never underestimate the power of what your story can do for someone else. The Bell Jar is narrated by 19-year-old Esther Greenwood. The three-part novel explores Esther's unsatisfactory experiences as a student editor in Manhattan. Her return to her family home, where she suffers a breakdown and attempts suicide, and her recovery with the aid of an enlightened female doctor. One of the novel's themes, the search for a valid personal identity, is as old as fiction itself. The other, a rebellion against conventional female roles, was slightly ahead of its time. Nancy Duval Hargrove observed in the Dictionary of Literary Biography. As a novel growing up of initiation into adulthood, The Bell Jar is very solidly in the tradition of Bill Dung's Roman, which is a novel which deals with one person's formative years or spiritual education. I believe that's how you pronounce it. Bill Dung's Roman. Bill Dung's Roman. Bill Dung's Roman? Not sure, but I think that's how you pronounce it one of these ways. Technically, the bell jar is skillfully written and contains many of the haunting images and symbols that dominate Plath's poetry. The bell jar is a finely plotted novel full of vivid characters and written in a style one expects from a poet as frank and observant as Plath. The atmosphere of hospitals and sickness, of incidents of bleeding and electrocution set against images of confinement and liberation unify the novel's imagery. Hargrove maintained that the novel is a striking work which has contributed to Plath's reputation as a significant figure in contemporary American literature. It is more than a feminist document, for it presents the enduring human concerns of the search for identity, the pain of disillusionment, and the refusal to accept defeat. Her husband, Ted Hughes, once summarized Plath's unique personality and talent. Her poetry escapes ordinary analysis in the way clairvoyance and mediumship do. Her psychic gifts at almost any time were strong enough to make her frequently wish to be rid of them. In her poetry, in other words, she had free and controlled access to depths formerly reserved to the primitive, ecstatic priests, shamans, and holy men. Surveyed as a whole, I think the unity of her opus is clear. Once the unity shows itself, the logic and inevitability of the language which controls and contains such collisions within itself, becomes more obviously what it is, direct and even plain speech. This language, this unique and radiant substance, is the product of an alchemy on the noblest scale. Her elements were extreme, a violent, almost demonic spirit in her, opposed to tenderness and capacity to suffer and love things infinitely, which was just as great and far more in evidence. 
her stormy, luminous senses assaulted a downright practical intelligence that could probably have dealt with anything. She saw her world in the flame of the ultimate substance and the ultimate depth. And this is the distinction of her language, that every word is baraka, the flame, the rose folded together. Poets have often spoken about this ideal possibility, but where else, outside these poems, has it actually occurred? If we have the discrimination to answer this question, we can set her in her rightful company. We are now going to close out the episode with one of her poems. Early in 1961, Sylvia found out that she was pregnant. Her appendix was acting up, and she would have to undergo an appendectomy. After she went to a party for Theodore Rothke, the poet she admired most to Robert Lowell, Sylvia had a miscarriage. She had the appendectomy shortly afterwards. As she was healing, she spent time with her daughter Frida and wrote poems during this period that reflected on women's various experiences with bearing or not bearing children, which included Parliament Hill Fields, Morning Song, Barren Women, and the poem we will close today's episode out with, Heavy Women. Heavy Women by Sylvia Plath Irrefutable, beautifully smug as Venus, pedestaled on a half-shell, shawled in blonde hair and the salt scrim of a sea breeze, the women settle in their belling dresses. Over each weighty stomach a face floats calm as a moon or a cloud. Smiling to themselves, they meditate, devoutly as the Dutch bulb forming its twenty petals. The dark still nurses its secret. On the green hill under the thorn trees, they listen for the millennium, the knock of the small new heart. Pink button infants attend them, looping wool, doing nothing in particular, they step among the archetypes. Dusk hoods them in merry blue, while far off the axle of winter grinds round, bearing down the straw, the star, the wise gray men. That's another episode of Get Lit Minute. Thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us. Please make sure to like, comment, subscribe. This podcast is available wherever you listen to podcasts, wherever you find them. So make sure you share it with your friends, spread the message of poetry and spoken word wide and far, and um, just uh, stay safe during these times. And we look forward to checking in with you next week. Take it easy. Bye-bye.